this is Captain Lee, and you're listening to the Andertons Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, our special guest for today, thank you for tuning in, Mr. Walter Trout. Um, possibly the most excited I've been in one of these videos in uh, a long time. Well, calm down. I am. Now, you I, know. I, I am excited because, um, <laughs> yes, you uh, are one of the guitar players that excites me the most when I, when I listen to their music. I love what you play. and it's, well, thanks, it's, man. It is an honour to have you thank on. You. So, as is the way with our kind of uh, interviews that we do. I'd love to know, you know, tell me about your life growing up and, and the things that inspired you and influenced you to want to get into the guitar. Wow. Um, when I was a kid, I was an aspiring jazz trumpet player. Okay. And I studied the trumpet from age five. I played it all through high school in the high school orchestra and the marching band. And I found out in high school, if I was in the marching band and the orchestra and the choir, I did not have to take phys ed and I did not have to go out and play football. So I you was in all the band. music programs. But um, when I was, I was really into it for a while. I mean, my, my dad and my mom would take me to black jazz clubs in Atlantic City and um, my mom took me to see James Brown and Ray Charles and Lou Rawls and um, Ella Fitzgerald and for my 10th birthday she set it up that I got to spend the day with Duke Ellington and his orchestra wow. and um, sit around with Duke Ellington and talk about music and um, so I was very lucky in that my parents saw from an early age that I just loved music and they they nurtured it in me you mm -hmm. know and they never once told me get a real job they, they always said, hey, we hear you playing and we think you can do it. But um, in about 1961 or 62, my older brother, um, who was very musically hip, brought home an album and said, I, I want you to listen to this guy. You know, this is not jazz, but... And it was the first album by Bob Dylan. Okay. And um, I was really taken with it. And, and I got an acoustic guitar, um, and I realized that these songs were kind of easy. They were three chords, and that I could learn, I could strum the chords and play them at parties, and people would think I was cool. And I got pretty good at, at strumming and playing folk music. And um, 
That's what I did for a long time. I was going to, at that point, I loved sitting by myself and singing folk songs. And then, as many of my generation will tell you, on February the 9th, 1964, at 8 o'clock at night, Channel 2 in Philadelphia, the Beatles on Ed Sullivan. And um, it changed our lives, that generation. I was 13 and everything changed that night, and I decided I had to have an electric guitar. Um, a little over a year later, my brother again brought home an album and said, you need to hear this guitar player. He said, I want you to sit down because you're going to fall <laughs> over. And it was the first album by the Paul Butterfield Blues Band, oh, okay. and it had a guitar player named Michael Bloomfield. Yeah. And um, I heard that. And I immediately told my brother and my parents, I know what I want to do now. I'm going to be a blues guitar player. And I was 14. And from that moment on, that that was it for me. I didn't care about school. I didn't care about anything. I was going to be a blues guitar player. And... Um, so I, I taught myself, you know, I, I still played the trumpet all through high school because it kept me out of having to go to gym class. But um, from that moment on, there was really kind of nothing else for me, but I'm going to be a blues guitar player. And God bless my parents. My mom was on the faculty of my high school, and I would tell her, I just don't care about school. I just want to play the guitar. And she never once said... No, you need to get a real job. That's just a pipe dream. She always said, I hear you playing in your bedroom, and I think you can do it. And I just work at it. And she would tell me, the guy down the street practices three hours a day. You need to practice six hours a day because the guy that works harder at it is going to go further. And um, so that, that was it for me from an early age. And so this is New Jersey, right? Growing yes. up in New Jersey. Yes. Uh, presumably a pretty cool scene, good blues scene there. Uh, no, there was time. no blues no? scene there. Oh, really? No, not at all. That's why... Um, I'm thinking, I'm always thinking that sort of East Coast kind of thing was where it was all happening. Well, this but. was New Jersey in the 60s and uh, also late 60s, early 70s. Mm-hmm. And around that time um, was when... Uh, especially early 70s, Bruce Springsteen started breaking through. And and it was really... um, South Jersey was not a hotbed of blues. Right. You know. Um, Where did you have to go to see that? Well, at that point, um, I was in a club band, um, a very popular club band, and we had a horn line, and we played all up and down the East Coast in the club circuit. And... We were a cover band. We did Beatles and Stones, and we did Santana, and we did um, Otis Redding and Sam and Dave, and we did Chicago Transit Authority and Blood, Sweat, and Tears. And once in a while, I would say um, to the band, look, hey, I want to do a Muddy Waters song, you know. And um, but, but we worked all the time. I was a working musician, but in order to really follow my dream, I knew I had to get out of New Jersey. Right. And I had, to me, I had two options. There was New York City, which was an hour away, or there was Los Angeles, which was 3,000 miles yeah. away. And um, I took a vacation and went to L.A. for a couple of weeks and realized that um, there was more of a scene out there, that New York was very kind of a closed, small mm-hmm. scene. And I was working in New York quite a bit. I was singing TV commercials. And uh, I did that quite a bit. And so I kind of knew that New York was kind of closed and small. And L.A. was big and there were lots of clubs. And so I I moved there um, when I was 23. I just packed my car up. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a Volkswagen Beetle. I'll tell you the truth. I had a Martin D28, a Gibson 335, a mandolin, a trumpet, a Fender Super Reverb. All my clothes, I had a half a pound of marijuana and 30 hits of LSD and $150. And I drove across the country. I had all that in my VW and I went to LA. Oh, man. I wish I'd been in the back of that car. I hallucinated my way across the country. (laughs) 
<laughs> so yeah, you you think it took you like two weeks? Actually, it was about three years. So when you got to LA, then so you knew nobody there, or you had some well, some I had some friends. friends from Jersey who had a house there, and they said you can come and stay with us. So I, I moved in with them, and I started going around to nightclubs and saying, "Can I sit in? Yeah, you know, I play the guitar, can I sit in?" And um, I went into a club in Corona Del Mar. California, and there was this great country band, and it was guys who played with Dolly Parton, mm-hmm. and uh, they were these incredible players, but nobody could sing. And um, I had actually played a lot of country music, and I went up and I said, you know, I know every song by Hank Williams and Merle Haggard and Buck Owens and Patsy Cline, and uh, can I sing one? And I stood up and I sang a Hank Williams song, and I got hired as the stand-up lead singer in the country band. And I said, I play guitar. And they said, we have a guitar player. He's a great player. We need a singer. So my first gig, I stood up and sang, you know, fronted the band. And with my first paycheck, I went out and bought the, um, the Strat that's on the cover of all my albums, that old beat-up thing. Amazing. And uh, I brought it in and said, look, I, I just bought this. Can I try it out? And they said, yeah, plug in. And I played. And they said, you didn't tell us you could play like that. And I said, I've been a couple of weeks trying to tell you. Well, I ended up becoming the lead player. And I started saying, hey, along with Hank Williams, how about we do a, we do a Chuck Berry song? How about we do a Rolling Stones song? And little by little, I turned them into a uh, rock and roll band. And then we got fired. <laughs> As the guy said, I wanted a country band. Trout got in your band, and now you guys are playing Little Richard songs, you know. Your, your whole life is basically like the Blues Brothers script at the moment, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So when was the, when was the first kind of, um, you know, really big break for you then at that time? So we're, we're into, let me get my timeline straight, so 23. So we're into the sort of late 70s. By we're into um, 1974. Right, 75. mid-70s, yeah. Um, I would say that the first thing really cool that happened for me out there, um, I met this beautiful blonde-haired girl from L.A., and, and she started taking me around and kind of... Um, she knew a lot of people in L.A. She took me to a party, and there was a guitar player there named Jesse Ed Davis. And I don't know if you know Jesse Ed not, Davis. Not familiar, no. um, he's in the concert for Bangladesh playing with George Harrison. He's the lead player on Walls and Bridges and Rock and Roll by John Lennon. Right. Um, he played the solo on Doctor My Eyes by Jackson Brown. He played all the leads on Atlantic Crossing by Rod Stewart. Right. Um, so I should know. <laughs> he was the guy. The first three Taj Mahal albums, that's wow. Jesse Ed. Okay, cool. Um, he also toured with the Faces. Um, anyway, I went up and I said... I. I'm like your biggest fan, you know, I, I love your stuff. And I found out he had a band and was looking for a rhythm guitar player. And I said, could I audition for your band? And he said, well, who have you played with? And I said, well, I played with a bar band in New Jersey. And he said, I just made a record with Rod Stewart. <laughs> the bass player there is also the bass player on the Rod Stewart album. And he also plays with uh, Steve Miller and Jackson Brown. The drummer plays with Van Morrison and Steve Miller. You think you can hold your own with us? What do you got to lose? Yeah. Um, I ended up, I auditioned and I got the gig. So I was playing rhythm guitar. Suddenly from a little town in New Jersey, I was um, playing with these big time kind of rock and roll guys all over Sunset Strip. Wow. And, um, you know, leading the, the rock star life with these guys. But unfortunately, there was also a whole lot of hard narcotics going on. <laughs> and, um, you know, between us, I ended up getting strung out on heroin. Right. Which, and Jesse ended up dying of an overdose. And um, so there was a good and bad with that. But that was the first big break for me was meeting him and playing in his yeah. band. And look him up. He's He's... He's on 10,000 records. Right. No, I will. He's the acoustic guitar strumming on Cherry Cherry by Neil Diamond. I mean, he's all over the place. You know? Right. Amazing. Yeah. Well, I mean, we can kind of 
I guess we'll touch on various points during your career where kind of, you know, drinking drugs and stuff have, have um, you know, played a part of it. But, you know, you, you, your career um, really took off from there. You know, people will be familiar with a lot of the bands that you've played with before you went solo. Yeah, so. well, a- after Jesse, um, I had to first get off of the heroin. Mm. And uh, I worked at that and I got, I got clean of the heroin. But I went another 10 years on cocaine and alcohol. That's another story. But mm. I um, left L.A. I went to Huntington Beach, California, which is 40 miles south. And I started playing in another club band. Okay. And I did that for a while. And we played in a, in a club five, six nights a week. And we worked all the time. But one day, um, and, and we were a cover band, mm-hmm. of course. And I would also say to the band... Hey, I, you know, along with this uh, doing a Beatles tune, I would like to try a, a Muddy Waters tune, you know. One day a friend of mine said, hey, I was on the pier in Redondo Beach and there's a little club and on Sundays they have these older black guys and all they do is play blues. And I told them about you and I asked if I brought you up if you could play a song. And I said, well, let's go. And we went up there, and um, it was these older black guys, and they were playing blues. And my friend said, this is Walter. He said, you said he could sit in. And they went, oh, we don't know. <laughs> and he said, look, I drove. It's an hour and a half drive, and my friend got all ticked off. And they said, okay, he can play one song. I played a song. Said, hey, play another song. I played another song. Hey, stay up for the set. I stayed up for the set. They said, you want to join the band? Uh, it turned out it was John Lee Hooker's backing band. Amazing. Playing without John Lee Hooker, doing a Sunday afternoon gig. And um, so I got in that band, and I was the only um, vanilla fella. <laughs> and um, with those guys, we backed up. That's where I got to play with Big Mama Thornton and Percy Mayfield uh, and Bo Diddley and Lowell Folsom and... Um, Joe Tex, who paid us in counterfeit money, so I quit that gig. Um, he didn't just pay us in counterfeit money, he bragged about it. <laughs> look how good this money looked. I said, what? He goes, yeah, man, they just printed it up. It looked good. I said, well, he gave me $40. I said, if you're giving me fake money, give me 1000 bucks." He said, you work for $40. I said, yeah, but real, real dollars. He said, what's the matter? You can spend this. So I never went back. But um, <laughs> but with those guys is how I got to play with all all of those those great blues artists and um, one time playing with John Lee Hooker, mm. a bunch of kind of crusty looking biker guys came in and they listened to me and they came back the next night and they said um, we're canned heat, we're looking for a guitar player to do a tour, and. Um, it was supposed to be one tour. It turned into five years. But so then, while I was with Canned Heat, is when I got heard and befriended by John Mayall. So it was like one band to the other. You tell, know? tell us some stories for our story from Canned Heat, because all, all I know of them is it's just like the the lineup doesn't stay the same for more than two minutes because they're all beating each other up all the time. Well, they're either like... beating each other up or they're dead. <laughs> you know, um, some stories that are. You know, ones can that be shared get with the yeah. public. <laughs> Let's see what can be shared with the public. Um, I can tell you about you know when they asked me if they want you know would you like to join the band? They said, well, do you have drink or drug problems? And of course, I said, oh no, no, I'm I'm fine. And uh, we were managed by managed and owned by a well-known um, biker club gang that I will not name in Fair public. Um, I've been asked not to name them yep. by them. Very well known. The first gig I do with them, they, he, the guy comes in. I, they don't want me to have a drug problem. He goes, welcome to the band. And he hands me a mayonnaise jar full of <laughs> cocaine. You know, um, I shouldn't laugh, but it's hard not to. <laughs> like if you didn't have a drug problem, you're going to have one now when you get in this band. But I had a great time with those guys. You know, I'm still dear, dear friends with Fito De La Parra. Um, I talk to him a lot. We're, we're buddies on the internet, you know. And um, But I really, you know, we were just wasted. I can tell you that um, 
one time we flew to Australia and I thought it's an 18 hour flight. It would behoove me to eat a couple of quaaludes and drink a <laughs> bottle of whiskey. So we got to Australia and I was unconscious and they couldn't get me off the plane. So the band carried me off the plane. They took me down to baggage claim and they laid me on the conveyor belt and they watched me go around into the back of the, and then come out the other side. And um, <laughs> at I, least that's what they tell me. I yeah. don't remember it. Oh, if only the internet had been invented then. They yeah, could have been that video YouTube, and that, amazing. Huh? Oh, that'd be nice. Oh man. <laughs> I don't know how many uh, don't do this at home kids warnings will flash up during this video. <laughs> I suspect a few. No, um, but I, I have been sober for 32 years, though. Oh, well, this. OK, well, we'll, we'll get to the uh, important reasons why you should be sober. Yeah. You know, a bit, but so the John Mayall thing, I mean, it doesn't get much more iconic than that in terms of being asked to join no. a blues band. So how did that come to, around? To me, if you are a blues guitar player and you're a sideman. Yeah. Getting in John Mayall's band is the pinnacle. Mm. That's as high up as you can go. Where can you go from there? You could say, oh, well, you could get a gig with B.B. King, but you're going to just play chords and you're going to stand in the background. Mr. Mayall features you. He nurtures you. Um, mm. he, he builds you up into... You, you. There's nowhere to go. You either go solo or you take a mm. step down from that band. That's, mm. that's the peak, man. And... Um, I had an incredible time in that band. I mean, that was probably the most fun I've ever had on the road. He's got an amazing sense of humor, and he's very, very unique. And um, it was just a lot of fun. I mean, he works very hard. Mm -hmm. He doesn't believe in days off. He's 85. <laughs> he's still out doing, he'll do 60, 63 cities in 65 days, you know. Um, and guys in his band now will call me up and they'll complain about it. And I go, wait a minute, the guy's 85. Yeah. He's doing it. You go do it and quit complaining, you know. Was that, uh, do you think it was the sort of the John Mayall time that you really, you know, from a technique point of view, you, you found your, you know, your place to be or had that developed earlier or? or? When I got into his band, I was still very... Um, driven and consumed by the urge to party right and he put up with a lot from me he put up with a lot of insane behavior that i would not put up with um but he he nurtured me and he gave me the chance to get through it and when i was in his band we were playing in east berlin germany and we were in a hotel with Carlos Santana and his band, and Santana came to our show, and he came up to me afterwards, and he said, like, what, what's up with you, man? And I was like, well, what's your problem? What do you mean? And he goes, you're in John Mayall's band. You're in a famous band. He's, and he said, there's 100,000 guitar players out there would give anything to be in the position you're in, and you've been given a gift of music and you're so loaded on the stage, and, I, and this is what he did, he said, you're doing this to the one who gave you the gift. And uh, he gave me a book, he said, read this tonight and we'll talk tomorrow. We, I had three days off and he spent three days with me and we had these incredible talks about um, finding out that everybody has something they're good at, everybody. Everybody has some sort of talent. Maybe you're a great car mechanic. Maybe you're a great baker. I, I don't know, you know, but your responsibility in life is to find out what you're good at, to nurture it, to take it seriously and do it to the very best of your ability. And mm -hmm. in that way, you make the world a little bit better place and you contribute your gift to the world. And that's basically what he told me. And um, I went to Mr. Mayo and I said, you will never see me high again. And that's been 32 years. So literally straight cold turkey. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I was done. And, wow. And um, so John put up with a lot of crazed behavior from me and gave me the chance to change my life and to get serious about my gift of music and serious about sharing it and developing it mm. to the very best of my ability, you know. Obviously... You know, I can't and don't condone, you know, people who drink and take drugs and stuff to to excess. But it's 
difficult, I think, with music not to look at players like Hendrix and early Clapton and a lot of guys like that and just go, it definitely... They made music under the influence yeah. that it's difficult to know whether they would have made that music had they not been under the influence. Well, so, uh, you know, you, you've got a really interesting kind of take because you've made music under the influence and you've made music with clarity, you know, when, yeah. uh, and I'm interested to sort of know, you know, from a, what's it like, you know, where, where, is it easier? Okay. okay. Now you know? what, what you're saying there, because I grew up musically in the sixties, of course I was listening and going to see Jimi Hendrix and mm-hmm. I was going to see the cream and I was going to see Roy Buchanan. And I was going to see all these guys that really influenced me. And I knew they were all wasted and I came up with, there's this romanticized image of the hard-living blues man. And when I first toured with John Mayall, the first tour I did with the original Blues Breakers, he was drinking, and we bonded over our love of alcohol. Here's a true story. He had a wine bottle that he had made a label called Chateau Hibiscus. And at the end of the night, we would go through the club, and he had a funnel, and we would take the half-drank drinks, and we would pour them into the wine bottle. He would cap it. We would let it age overnight. Then we'd sit in the back seat of the van the next day with our glasses, and we'd, oh, it's a mix of Budweiser and Pernod, you know, and uh, we'd down it. And right. so he and I bonded over our love of alcohol. Then he got sober. And, um, and he, he was one of the ones in his band that told me, look, you don't have to be this tormented, crazy, tragic individual to play this music. You can be kind of an adjusted family guy with, with, who's trying to live a good life and, and still play this music. And um, it took a while for that message to sink in. But Carlos helped it sink in. But I, I can tell you this. When I listened to records that I played on when I was high, um, I don't hear an edge in my playing. I hear slop. And I think of it now, if you think of music as a language, when guys are drunk, they slur their words. They say the same thing over and over. And they you know, and if you think of music as a language, that's what the guitar playing sounds like to me. I'm slurring my words. I'm playing the same stuff over and over. I'm saying the same story. Mm. You know, the drunk guy who comes up and tells you the same thing 10 times in a row, you know, yeah. slobbering. That's what I hear on those records. I don't hear an edge. I don't hear the the balls, you know. Mm. I hear the burger. The first night I went on stage without being high, and it was the first night, I mean, I started playing in bands when I was 17 and I was high every night, every night. The first night with Mayall, after I, got, I stopped drinking, I stopped drugging, I was in the middle of a tour. I went out on stage, I wanted to test my amp, I hit a G chord, and my emotional connection to that chord was so strong, I started weeping. And what I realized is that emotionally to connect to the music if you're dull that just dulls your emotions you have to be as Carlos said to me he went like this he said if you're up there and you want to play seriously he did this he said you can't be like this that's another thing he did Mm. and I found that Music became a whole new, beautiful, emotional experience when I was not high. Mm. Um, There was no buffer zone between my heart and the music. My heart became the music. And uh, sometimes it's... My road manager will tell you there are sometimes we'll play a slow blues. And at the end of the song, I'm on stage and I have to cry for five minutes because it's so emotionally intense for me. That didn't happen when I was drunk or stoned. Is, is that a... So would it be fair to say it's no coincidence that you went solo shortly after being clean then? 
Well, I got clean. It was uh, it was July the 9th, 1987, mm-hmm. and I quit John on um, March the sixth, nineteen eighty nine. Um, I quit him on my birthday. Okay. I was on stage and I was thinking to myself, I'm thirty eight years old, and my dream was always to have my own band and to write the songs mm-hmm. and to, and to give the musical direction. And if I ever want to do that. I've got to take the step. I'm 38, you know. Mm-hmm. Most guys, by the time they're 38, they've already had a washed-up career and they're trying to recapture <laughs> their former glory, right? I was just getting going. And um, so I, I was up there playing and thinking, John is like a father to me. I could stay in his band as long as I wanted. He and I are dear friends, and I love the man. He loved my playing, and... Um, but, and it was an incredible gig. I traveled the world first class, got paid great, stayed in great hotels, was treated like gold. But I'm like, if I want to, if I want to really share what I have to give, I've got to make this move. And, uh, I went to his room and I said, John, I think I'm going to have to quit. And he said, it's your birthday, you're just emotional, you'll feel different in the morning. And I said, I'm not going to feel different in the morning. And we both ended up crying. You know, mm-hmm. he's a great man. He really is. Oh, that's cool, man. I mean, you said it before, didn't you? It's If you want to be in a blues band, it doesn't come any bigger or better than his yeah. band, does it? So. Yeah. So you, you're going to take the you, you you make the step then as you say almost a little later in your life than than you maybe wanted to, but what is was it? What, what, did you were you generally you know did you have labels ready to sign you up because you were John Mayer's guitar player or was it like I'm starting from scratch again and that's kind of interesting. I was on tour with John and we were in Denmark, the beautiful Denmark a town called Alborg. And John got very ill. He had the flu. And he said to the promoter, I have to cancel the show. And the promoter said, if you cancel the show, I'm going to lose a lot of money. How about if the band goes on without you, and at the end of the night I tell people, okay, now if you want your money back, you can get your money back. The promoter of the club agreed to it. So I went on. And Coco Montoya and I took turns fronting the Blues Breakers. Right. And, and we played a lot of stuff that we never did with the Blues Breakers. I was doing Jimi Hendrix tunes and Cream songs and all kinds of stuff. And we came off the stage and a guy walked up and said, I'm from Electra Records, Denmark. I'd like to offer you a record <laughs> deal. And the, the booking agent who books John said, hey, Walter, if you make a record, I'll book a tour for you. So um, it was kind of handed to That's me. That's great. And my career started in Scandinavia. Is that where you met your, your wife as well on that, that same That is tour? where I met my wife. See, Denmark's where all the good things happen. <laughs> it is. I think I might move there. Um, well, I met her at a gig and talked to her for 45 minutes. And I said, you're going to move to America. We're going to get married. We're going to have children. We're going to get old together. And she was like, What? <laughs> And I said, and you have no say in this because it's meant to happen. And a week later, she moved to the States, and that was 30 years ago. I just knew. Love at first sight. Yeah, I love exactly. it. Exactly. That's amazing. So your solo career, how many albums in are we now? 28. 28 albums. That's a lot. <laughs> yeah. I, I've had a band for 30 years. I've done 28 albums, but I had two years off because I was on my deathbed. So I didn't get to do albums for those two years. Well, we shall talk about, uh, yes, what happened in, was that 2014, wasn't it? I think. Yeah. All, yeah. So we'll talk about that. But I mean, your solo career, what would have been the, you know, do you have a, I know it's going to sound awful. I'm going to say, do you have a standout album? But I guess this, the, the, it'll always um, be the last one. But you know, the, what? my belief is this: that when I finally croak and I'm dead and gone, and yeah. they look up back at my catalog, they will go, "Battle Scars" was probably his most honest, um, gut-wrenching piece of work because that is a musical story of my illness and my yeah. recovery. Yeah, and I wrote the songs for myself. I didn't know they'd get recorded. Yeah, um, they're just they're just really graphic and really dark, 
and um, I didn't hold back on that record. So I think that's record. probably my creative peak. I, think I, I hate like that saying one. I've hit my peak. No, no, no. I think that one, Blues for the Modern Days, I think is just a killer album as well. Um, but Survivors is is cool. You know, it's like, and as you say, it's a it's a different take because it's covers, and but they're they're not. I, I don't think you would know it's a cover album unless you read the sleeve notes. Well, you know? they're songs that have not been covered. Yeah. And I got the idea for that driving around listening to blues radio, and here's another band, and they're doing the 856th version of Got My Mojo Working <laughs> or Stormy Monday, and I'm like, this is, come on, there's all this, the blues has a 100-year recorded history starting with Charlie Patton, right? Yeah. In the, in the 1920s. Charlie Patton started it off. And there's a hundred years of this stuff. And everybody's doing like the same 10 songs. And I'm like, come on, you know. So I just went back through the history of it and looked for stuff that I thought was great, great statements and great songs, but that have been forgotten. Yeah. You know? So let, let's get semi-serious for, for, for a moment and talk about uh, 2014. Um, I gather you were mid-tour, weren't you, when you started to feel something wasn't right? I was in the middle of a tour probably in 2013, and right. I was playing a gig in Holland, a big festival, um, Ribs and Blues. And uh, we got to near the end of the set and called up a friend of ours, Curtis Salgado, to sit in, and I was playing, and suddenly my hands cramped like excruciatingly and my fingers closed and I couldn't open my hands and they, they hurt like I've never experienced before. And I ended up bending my middle finger out and playing the last song with one finger. And um, it just kept getting worse and worse. And I found out I had a disease called hepatitis C um, and that it had caused cirrhosis of the liver and my liver was not working anymore. And um, I didn't know I had the hepatitis C and a lot of people of my generation have it and don't know they have it. You could get it from, and you could get it from a dentist, you could get it from getting a tattoo, you could also get it from snorting cocaine or you could get it from shooting heroin, all of which I did. So God knows how I got it, you know. Mm. And what, uh, so you needed, you know, for, for a time it was pretty touch and go, wasn't it, about whether you were going to get a liver transplant? Well, it and... was uh, touch and go is, is a gentle phrase there. Yeah, it didn't, I, I started in UCLA, which is supposed to be the mecca for liver transplants. And um, they basically told my wife, there's nothing we can do for him. He, he, he's not going to make it, right. you know. And, um Part of the problem is the availability of, mm. of livers and the demand. And in Los Angeles, there's a great demand and not enough availability. And there's four transplant centers, so they have to divide mm. the available organs between them. And my wife got a call from Curtis Salgado, who's a great blues man in his own right, award-winning. He had received a liver transplant in Omaha, Nebraska. And he called my wife and said, Marie, you need to give this doctor a call. And um, can't hurt, he saved my life. He goes, so, and he had been at four different transplant centers and they had told him there's no hope. And then this guy in Omaha saved his life. She called this doctor, he said, get him out here. She carried me onto an airplane with a friend and I ended up being in bed in Omaha for eight months. Um, they couldn't find a liver for me. and. Um, I had brain damage. I couldn't speak. I didn't recognize my wife or my kids. I um, died a couple times. Um, and then at the last minute, they, they found the liver and they, they put it in there. And um, then I was still there for a few more months where I had to try to learn how to walk again and get speech therapy and learn how to talk again. And, um, you know, um, I got the the transplant on May the 26th of 2014, and they let me go home in September. And then I went home and um, realized I, I didn't know how to play the guitar anymore. It had been wiped clean from my memory, from my muscles, and my wife would show me videos of myself, and I'd go, I, 
I don't know who that guy is. I can't do that. I, there's no way I could do that. And she said, well, you got to start over. And um, so I sat down and taught myself. And I have to say, I picked it up and it was the most painful. I had no calluses, mm. you know, and, and um, my God, for a while it was excruciating just trying to I didn't have strength either. I couldn't press the string to the fret because I was so weak. And um, I had lost 120 pounds. Wow. I, I weigh 220 now. Mm -hmm. um, when I got home from Omaha, I weighed 100 and, 105 or something or 100 pounds. And, um, but I just, finally I went at it. I went at it every day for six or seven hours and, and it came back after a while, you know. So it's unbelievable, amazing story. And then, of course, to top all that, you write an album, you know, about the whole experience. And as you say, it's your, you think, you know, I think most people would agree it's a, it's a fine, fine album, you know. Well, once again, that goes back to her in that I had some severe PTSD. I had mm. been through some trauma. And um, she said to me one day, man, you're not pleasant to be around. You've got, you're like going nuts mentally here. You're going mm -hmm. through a lot. You either need to go, she said, go see a shrink and talk to him about it or see if you can write a song. Mm -hmm. And she gave me that idea and in two days I wrote 18 songs and wow. that became that album. I mean, this, I suppose that's testament, isn't it, to the, the sort of the therapeutic power of, music yeah. just you know it, exactly it, it does allow you know the body to sometimes cleanse itself of difficult feelings yeah. doesn't it yeah. or or good feelings you it, know or it's whatever. therapeutic if you mm. need it to be therapeutic it, it can do that for you you know i mean and presumably now you're still having to look after yourself presumably you, ne you never really fully get the all clear from a you know you have to presumably take medication for the transplant i'm on anti um what are they called? Anti-immunosuppressants. Um, mm. So I, I don't have an immune system. Otherwise, my body would reject the liver. So how do you balance, you know, touring and, you know, because you're still working hard, aren't you? Just Well, I don't know if I balance it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, me and the word balance have never had a good relationship. Okay. But um, I do attempt to get some sleep. I attempt to eat well. Um, when I told the doctors I want to go back on tour, um, and I told them, for instance, I like to go out to the merch booth and sign CDs mm -hmm. and take pictures and meet the fans. It's something I truly enjoy. How do I do that? And he said, well, you can shake hands with them. Don't touch your face until yeah, you, you bathe yourself in this stuff, right? So uh, I carry this stuff, I sit there, I shake hands, and as soon as I'm done, I dump that stuff over <laughs> my head. Um, and, you know, um, so far, it, it's been okay. I've been doing great. It's been going well. Um, they all, I said, what about if the guy sneezes? And they said, as long as you're three feet away, you're okay. Which, You're, you're an inspiration. You really are. That whole kind of to anybody, I suppose, that's uh, going through a difficult time at the moment, uh, that you can just fight it and come back and still, you know, get back to the kind of levels of playing that you were at before. It's it's amazing. It really is. Well, I actually even took lessons for the first time in my Did life you? when I was coming back. Yeah, because I because I was self-taught um, and I started teaching myself again. I realized I had certain technical habits that could be better. A yeah. lot of it having to do with how you hold the pick and how you attack the pick. And I, yeah. I took a couple of lessons from this hotshot guy in Nashville who's an amazing teacher. And, um, you know, the stuff he taught me when I'm sitting around home practicing, I can really do it well, but as soon as I get on stage, I just start calling, <laughs> I forget it all, you know. Well, look, we, we should talk about, I, I do want to sort of finish up talking about kind of gear because we are a gear channel, but also as well, I, uh, one of the things we were talking about before we pressed the, 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 the camera, actually, I, we might have pressed the camera just in time, but we should re-go over this idea that um, 
you are a more is more guy, aren't you? To sort yeah. of steal, steal a phrase from Ingve. Uh, but I was saying before, you know, some of the guitar players that I listen to, they're restrained blues players. You can see their brain is processing a conscious, like, how can I play less here, make that one note? But you're really not from that school, are you? I, I'm not really from that school. <laughs> I, I never wanted to kind of lay back. Um, let's make an analogy. When you're having sex, do you want to be restrained or do you want to have some fun? You know what I mean? Do you want to lay back and take, you know, no, sorry, I don't want to get into it. I want this to be as boring as possible, baby. Um, you know, um, I mean, I, I just, I guess part of it is also because I grew up wanting to play jazz and I was in my house listening as a kid, listening to Charlie Parker and John Coltrane. Mm. And then when I started playing the guitar and playing blues, I thought, you talk about a lot of notes. I mean, Charlie Parker is 8,000 notes a second. And I was like, well, why can't you approach this music the same way? Why did... I love B.B. King. He can say it all in one note. But that's not me. I, it, that's not who I am. Um, my wife um, says, uh, she goes, Walter, you're like a wild stallion. And she goes, <laughs> when you're on stage and you're playing those solos, you're always on the edge of train wrecking and like like you're going to explode, you know, like you're going like the drummer yeah. in Spinal Tap and just gonna blow up, and uh, it's that's just my approach. But and, I like that. And you know, um, I have to say, you know, the blues is full of a lot of snobs, and I always got a lot of crap from the purists. But the old guys who hired me, who I played with, hired me because they liked my playing. John Lee Hooker, Big Mama Thornton. Uh, Percy Mayfield, all these guys, they liked what I was doing. And uh, it is exciting. That's what that's what I get from when I listen to your music. It feels, you know, it's like getting the car into the red zone of the Rev County. You know, it feels exciting. It's it's there's a noise coming out. You're literally just going, oh, he's right on the edge here. Can he keep yeah. and it's, it? It is exciting. Um, yeah. And I, I love I love that about your playing and I love that about your sound everything's on the edge the amp sounds on the edge the guitar playing's on the oh, edge yeah. it just... I, I like the amp you know it should be vibrating and you know about to explode yeah you know? it's a it's a cool sound i mean we should tell me about i mean you, you mentioned uh, uh, the the sunburst strat that's on that's on the album covers as being the one that you yeah when you were a kid or your first guitar but yeah. tell me about this one what have you got um, here this one was based it's it's put together um when i about 15 years ago, my left shoulder went out because that old Strat of mine is literally heavier than a Les Paul. Wow. And after 36 years or something of touring with it, my shoulder went out. And uh, so a guy named Scott Lentz, who builds guitars in San Diego, built me the body. And it's very, very light. This mm -hmm. thing weighs nothing. Um, I took the neck off a Strat that I had sitting around my house, but the... The pickups were made for me by my good buddy Seymour Duncan. And uh, the he, he sent me a message and he said, I hear you're going to retire your old Strat. And I said, yeah. And he said, I will make you some pickups that will sound very, very close to it. And he sent those to me. We put them on here. I set up my rig in the garage and I went, took the two guitars back and forth. And it's very, very close to my old Strat. The, mm. Part of the difference, I think, on the old Strat, maybe um, the neck pickup is a little warmer on the old Strat, but on this one, the bridge pickup has a little bit more oomph, a little mm. bit more balls. But other than that, they're very close. And it's been my road guitar for about 15 years. And it's a hardtail as well. Just it's a hardtail. Never it's been a guy. My that... old Strat is a hardtail. Yeah. I never knew what to do with the whammy bar. You know, I would go see Eric Clapton or I'd go see Roy Buchanan. And they didn't have the whammy bar. And it was always guys going, and I just went, you know. Um, but then two years ago, I did a gig with Jeff Beck. And I went, damn, I wish I had a whammy bar. He's the king. He's the best he is the there best. ever has been. Yes. He's the best that ever lived, yes. I think. 
And then you're not a big pedal guy. We sort of I don't use any that. pedals. No, not no, a big pedal I, guy. I plug into the amp. I set it to destroy all life, and off we go. Well, now it's interesting. So you're a boogie fan. You've played boogies for thirty something uh, years as well. Thirty-five years. I have okay. been a boogie endorsee and use their amps exclusively, and just love them. Now, but. I have to say that we we had a, a slight outer body experience, really, in it, because you you don't like to be loud, which is like you know we're so used to coming in here and at nine o'clock in the morning doing videos with amps outrageously loud, but you no. you don't even you you said to me as well that if you think you can hear yourself too loud in a band mix, it puts you off playing. You play timidly. I so, play timidly. So how do you? I, I start. Going like, oh man, I'm too loud. I, I, it's very weird. I, um, I don't want to hear myself very loud in the, on in my ears on the stage. Um, I want to kind of get away from my guitar, and if I feel like it's kind of off in the distance, then I start hitting it really hard. Then it's a psychological yeah. thing. I gotta really dig in here, right? And then if it's too loud, I'm all, you know, you know, uh, so in my sound man has been with me for 28 years. He will come up to me and say, you got to turn your amp up. I can't get you loud enough yeah. out in the front, you know, to be with the band, you know, and, um, you know, but I have guys, they go, well, I went to see Walter Trout. It was the loudest thing I ever heard. <laughs> what it's about there is the intensity. Yeah. Yep. You know, they can't take the intensity of it because it's not the volume. Yeah, but I guess with the, the, the Boogie, the Mark V, you know, we're, we're using the highest gain channel with the gain almost on full to get a sense that the amp's about to explode. But yeah. the, the master volume is we could play this at home and we wouldn't wake the kids up or well, anything. Well, you know? that's it, man. One of the things with Boogies is you can literally get any sound at any volume. And I can set my Boogie up in my house and play at 3 a.m. with all that sustain and all that gain and, and people in the next room, it doesn't wake them up, you know? Yeah. Well, it's it's a fabulous sound. Uh, it's an honor to have you on. Uh, tell, tell me about what the next, you know, six months or, you know, 12 months contains for you. Just touring and... Um, well, I'm in the middle of a tour right now. I'm going to finish this tour. Um, then I'm going to go home. I'm going to do 10 dates in the Northwest. In, in the United States. Then I'm going to go to Denmark for Christmas. Nice. Then in January and February, I'm going to do another album, this time of all originals, of original songs. Yeah. And then starting in March, um, I will start touring again through the end of next year. I wow. love what I do. I love being a musician. It's all I ever wanted to do. Oh, it's a great story, man. And it's, you know, fantastic that you're still around and able to make such great music. So well, thank uh, you, Lee. No, not at all. Uh, you know, please guys go and check out some of Walter's work. Uh, it's, it, you know, anybody that likes a bit of blues guitar is going to love what you do. It's really, really cool. I, I'm sort of, you know, I, if I promise to uh, douse you in antibacterial stuff, can we Let's shake do, hands? I'll, on... I'll douse myself, man. <laughs> Good seeing you. Well, cheers for uh, tuning in, guys. Please like and subscribe. And yes, Walter Trout, everybody. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening to our latest podcast. If you enjoyed it, hit that subscribe button. See you next time. <laughs>